Welcome to another edition of You and Your Money. I'm Brian Hurst, and this evening we're once again going to focus on the investment world. What a year so far 2000 has been. Globally, economies are faced with a potential US-China trade war. Market performance on a daily basis seems to be influenced by President Trump's tweets, and at the same time, US rates are increasing. In South Africa, there's a delicate political situation that is currently being debated, and this has had an impact on our market. The good news is that the world economies are still growing steadily, and particularly in the USA, this has been brought out through strong corporate earnings as well as increasing dividends. And joining me this evening is Henry Biddlecombe, Investment Analyst at Anchor Capital. Henry, lovely to have you on the show with me. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Henry, let's talk what's happened in the USA in the last week, particularly with interest rates. And I, I want to ask you a question. Everyone is now calling this the end of a 10-year bull market, and we're now start starting to see more commentators talk about the possibility of a market crash. And this is spooking investors. So let's first talk about the impact of interest rates and Trump's question to the Federal Reserve about, guys, look at our economy, be, keep interest rates at these levels, don't push them up, and uh, the reaction of the Federal Reserve. So I think the key takeaway from um, Jackson Hole this weekend was Jerome Powell saying that he still thinks that a gradual rate of monetary policy, uh, monetary policy normalization is appropriate. Um, and I think the market was relieved to hear that. Um, in terms of the length of the bull market, I suppose factually this is the oldest bull market of all time, but it hasn't been a straight line up. You know, I was saying to you earlier, you need to remember in 2011, the S&P 500 came off by 20%. There was a period between 2015 and 2016 when it came off by 10%. So I think what you need to look at are market valuations. Now, the S&P 500 is trading on a forward earnings multiple of about 16 and a half times relative to a 10-year average of 14 and a half times. So corporate earnings in the U.S. only need to grow by 13% in order for that valuation to normalize. So I don't think we're in bubble territory yet. Now, when you say yet, uh, uh, you know, people, we talk about, as, as people investing, we don't watch the RAND on a daily basis. I mean, if you're a trader or you're an importer and exporter, you've got to understand what am I buying and what am I selling and what am I getting for it. But as long-term investors, we tell clients over a long period of time, you know, the opportunities global are far greater than the opportunities in South Africa. I mean, why invest in an economy that makes up 1% of world GDP when you've got 99%? Exactly. I mean, if you think about stocks without picking any stocks in particular, if you want to be in tele um, in um, e-commerce stocks, you're going to buy NASPERS, which has got your exposure to Tencent. Globally, you can buy Google, Apple, Amazon, and a whole range of others. You've got much more choice. Exactly. But, th but there are more and more commentators are calling for it because of this long run. And we're seeing markets now. I mean, tonight, as you say, markets are relieved. So they, 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 they actually have gone up. I mean, the Dow thing's up 1%, and NASDAQ and the, and the S&P must also be cl close to its highs. But when you talk about yet, I mean, we always talk about Markets predict the future, not currently. So are markets still saying that the next 12 to 24 months, even at longer, I mean, we're still expecting to see growth come out of corporate earnings? Mm. Well, if you look at what um, the market is expecting, next year it looks like 7% earnings growth is being priced in. So given the base that we're coming off of this year, I don't think that's too much of an ask. So obviously, you know, whether or not um, US uh, corporates disappoint or surprise will be only become evident in the first quarter of next year. But again, um, when the market's pricing in 7% earnings growth and inflation's running at 2% in the US, I think we're okay. You know, I think maybe, maybe investors' expectations need to be leveled because I think maybe we've had some very good years out of global. Well, there's no arguing that. And yeah. I think, you know, and I, I, I'm saying to many investors, you know, if you can get 5 to 7% over the next 3 to 5 years per year, 
and you may not get it in a straight line. It may, yeah, you, you, never do. You, yeah. you know, you never do. It's not, yeah. not like putting money in a bank. Yes. But I think if you can get those type of returns with inflation globally being around about the two percent, I think you should be very happy. Yes, I think a five to seven percent dollar return over time is a, is, a, is a good expectation. So let's just talk about interest rates. When are interest rates good for markets, and when are they bad for markets? So you must remember what the purpose of an interest rate is. It's really to um, control inflation, but you also don't want it to impede on economic growth. Um, so I think you want to watch an economy growing, but it needs to keep up with the increase in inflation rates. Um, so it's, it's really a method to maintain equilibrium. So to the extent that interest rate increases are stable and gradual, that's good for the economy. To the extent that they're big, um, and, and that they're a shock, that's, that's bad for markets. So interest rates rising because inflation is rising, wage, wage increases, is that, is that, is that when, when you start to say this could be the end of... Uh, yes, so yeah. certainly when you see inflation starting to tick up and starting to accelerate, and you see interest rate uh, increases starting to pick up, that would be when you would start to become a little bit more concerned, but we're not seeing that play out now. And Henry, I'm quite pleased to see our own Reserve Bank being a little bit more serious and being a little bit more committed and, again, level playing fields with, with, with inflation. We had inflation base uh, over the last month up from 4.6 to 5.1, and yet we've had comments from our, uh, our governor to say, I'm not going to... There's going to be no knee-jerk reaction. Well, exactly. So the Saab have come out and they've said that they're not going to react to the first order effects of a weaker rand. So in other words, they're not going to increase the uh, interest rate solely in response to a weaker currency. And I think that's very positive, Brian, because I don't think our economy can digest higher rates, or at least very easily, from, from, from here. Well, we're going to take a break. You can call us this evening if you want to chat, ask any questions. 011-484-0468. Stay tuned. We will be back shortly. Welcome back to New Money this evening. We're discussing investments. My guest, Henry Biddlecombe. If you'd like to call our number, 011-480-468. You can also email me on brian at bdtv.co.za. Henry, just a question. We talk very much about international markets growing and our market having moved sideways. However, if we have international markets deteriorating, if we have big hiccups, the fact that we haven't run, we will feel, we, we will feel that, uh, you know, they say when America what's sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. So let's just talk about, you know, is our market really dependent on the growth in global markets? Well, I think we certainly correlated to the growth in um, developed markets. And to the extent that a developed market would suffer a sell-off, certainly we would probably sell off in tandem because we're a more risky market. And when there's a risk of trade, emerging markets inevitably will, will suffer more than, than developed markets. But that's certainly not our base case at the moment. Okay, well, Philip in German says, will global rise in interest rates impact on flows into emerging markets? Because so we were talking about before we came on air, yeah. I mean, the weakness in the RAND has been outflows of, 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 of investments here. And you said that maybe that's slowing down, and that's why maybe when I came on air, the RAND was trading down at around about, well, up at 14, 18 to the dollar. Well, you must remember that um, global interest rates have been impacting flows into emerging markets for some years now. Um, while the developed market's been running on historically very low interest rates, so there's been a search for yield. So um, investors from developed markets have invested their funds into emerging markets when they, where they can earn a carry trade. Now, 
the important thing to note is as developed market monetary policy normalizes and interest rates in those developed markets go up, of course those flows are going to reverse. And that's part of why you're seeing emerging markets coming uh, under pressure now. Now, now, we talk about interest rates in the U.S. We're still not seeing the long-term bond rate at much more than 3%. And can you see that rising? I can see that rising, but, but gradually. I mean, certainly if you listen to a number of analysts, a lot of them will make a case for a 4.5% 10-year bond yield. And then the market would look like a very different place. But given the commentary coming out of Jackson Hole this weekend, I think that 3% is probably a good medium-term level. Well, Anthony Minran asks, what does one need to focus on when picking top stocks? Well, let's just first talk about earnings. Let's talk about U.S. earnings yeah. and then South African earnings and then let's talk about what do you need to pick when you're looking at a stock because that's really what you do. So there's been a big divergence between the performance of the equity markets in the U.S. and South Africa. Obviously, that's a function of earnings growth. You know, this year you've seen the U.S. grow earnings at 25% and earnings growth in South Africa has almost been flat. Um, so, of course, there should be differences in the performance of those two markets. But, you know, we'll buy stocks for a number of different reasons. Um, a stock might look expensive, but we'll buy it because the company's been growing those earnings consistently over time. Um, we might buy a very low quality, highly cyclical business, but we'll buy it because it's simply gotten too cheap. But I think when you're making your high conviction calls, the important thing to do is to size that position correctly, because what you don't want to do is to take too much risk and risk permanent capital loss. Henry, if I'd asked you 18 months ago, can you find value in the South African market? I think you actually, when we did discuss 18 months, you said you're really hard Struggled. to find value. And today? Yeah. Today, I think we're starting to see value in the market. Uh, I don't think this is the time to be getting defensive. I think this is the time when you want to look to the stocks that have been beaten up and they're looking cheap because I don't know when the economy is going to turn, but I do think that the likelihood of a turnaround today ha has increased dramatically versus last year. And you want to be positioned correctly for when that comes. Yeah. I mean, we don't need a lot, of, a, a lot of positive things for our market to turn, do we? No. I mean, just a couple of wins, and it would be nice to see. Where will those wins come from? So I think those wins will come from a mature um, business-friendly policy coming out of government. Certainly, I think putting next year's elections behind us will be a positive thing. Um, and I think you also need global sentiment, sentiment towards emerging markets uh, to normalize because I think at the moment um, there's been a risk of trade, EMs are out of favor, and, and that will change. Can you see that happening? I can see that happening with a three-year outlook, certainly. Uh, Mervyn in Durban says, if I'm looking for income, can one rely on REIT income? What are the dangers of the income dropping? And likewise, what are the dangers facing capital losses following the 20% drop this year? Okay, let's just talk about property, but let's first talk about income. We've seen resilient report results uh, yes, uh, last week. We've seen all the other companies. We've had a very big drop. I think it's more than 20%, it's actually yeah. 23% this year yeah. from the highs, although we've had a phenomenal run in property really funds. But the qu first question is, can you see the income? Because people are buying into property funds for income. Uh, and, and, and some of those property funds, and I'm not even talking about some of the smaller ones, but they're yielding close on eight, no, eight, eight and a half percent. Yields are looking very attractive. Yeah. So I think stock selection within that space at the moment is very important. So at the risk of getting a little bit technical now, what you want is to buy property stocks where they're paying distributions from the sustainable operating income of those businesses. You don't want businesses distributing once off. Those businesses are the ones with sustainable yields. Um, having said that, Yields do look attractive right now, but they look attractive for a reason. The property sector's had an incredible run over the last 10 years, but that's because these guys have been enjoying rental escalations of 7 to 8% every single year. Now, you've been seeing the results coming out of the retail sector. What do they look like? 
They look weak, don't they? These guys are not growing their revenue line and their costs are going up in inflation, so their margins are being squeezed. So when those landlords sit down with the retailers now and they renegotiate those leases, you'd best believe that they're very tough negotiations and they're not going to get the same rental escalations. So I think your distributions are fairly safe, but your growth in those distributions will be lower going forward. Okay, but so up to now, you've always had distribution increases of anything between 6 to 9%. That's right. So you think that maybe is lower. But can you, I mean, if someone's got a property portfolio and they're getting, say, an 8 and a quarter percent return, can they rely on that 8 and a quarter percent, you think, going forward? Broadly speaking, Brian, I think you can rely on the yield, but you're not going to enjoy the same level of capital growth in that portfolio that you have over the last 10 years. Okay, that was the other question, Move and asked, what's the chance of capital losses? as we've seen over the last six months. So I think uh, after the last six months, your risk of further capital losses are, are diminished. Mm-hmm. So I think your, your capital base from here will be quite stable, but again, the growth is going to probably be uh, limited. Uh, Julian asked from Johannesburg, what role will technology play to buy products without a broker and what pitfalls do you see? I mean, t- I mean the, the whole tech... I mean You're a broker, p- you yeah. tell us. Yeah, well, yeah. I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question I'd love to answer. I mean, yeah. you know, it's always the same situation, just to answer that question. Uh, I mean, you know, you can, be your own bo- you can be your own investment manager, and you must remember there's a lot to research, and if you're going to do all the research and pick up the information, you've got to keep researching. You've got to be sitting there all the time, picking up the tidbits, looking at SEND's announcement, what's happening. And the difficulty in that is, you know, pick, picking up all that information. That's why you rely on brokers. So while technology may give you a lot of information, it's, it's how you actually interpret that technology, that information. Isn't that really what you do? Isn't that what you do as an analyst? Of it's course. interpretation. Of Everyone reads the same information, but it's how you interpret it. Exactly. Yeah. Joseph Blumstein says, how does the liquidity of an ETF differ when compared to that of individual shares? So I think to, to get... Obviously it depends what share you're in. If you're in Anglo's Billiton, British Tobacco, no problem. But down the line, there are a lot of shares that are liquid. There are. So I think the big difference between the two is that an ETF actually has market makers behind it. So there are people who ensure that you can buy and sell that ETF at the market price. Whereas obviously with a share, you don't have that same guarantee. Yeah, but, but and, and then uh, uh, there's an email further on. We'll come to it when I get to it. I saw that before I came on here. Tarbin Jan, because I'm in my 30s and a large amount of my total saving is in my pension fund, which most South Africans. I've got 30 years to go to retirement. Why should I be restricted in how my funds are invested? After all, my retirement is really long-term investment. It's a great question, that. I think it's and such a good question. And, you know, and that's and Regulation 28, which limits how much you can invest in equities and how much can go offshore. Yeah, and I think more investors should be asking that question. I mean, why should a young man be forced to invest 70% of his retirement savings in an economy that represents 1% of global GDP? I think it's crazy. So I think pressure over time will force the, uh, the regulator to relax those rules. But I think it's something we need to look at now. Because one of the problems of retirement, and I won't go that all tonight, but one of them is people don't, in, don't take enough risk. Uh, they, they're too conservative over a long period of time. And that's the question Tav is asking. Well, we're still going to take calls. We haven't had any this evening. Zero uh, one. Stay tuned. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to your money this evening. We're discussing investments and my guest, Henry Biddlecombe from Anchor Group. Question for you. Every day you send out a newsletter and in your newsletter, your morning notes, you show the shares that went up and the shares that went down. 
and every day there's a few of property funds in the one going up and a few going down. Why is property stock so volatile? Look, I think uh, they've been particularly volatile over the last six months. And you must remember that property stocks, like banks, are quite sensitive to sentiment towards the South African um, stock market. And uh, global sentiment towards emerging markets in general has been quite volatile over the last six months. So that's really a function of, of that sentiment. Now, something I always notice. Katlicha in Polikwani says, what is more tax efficient, owning equities in my individual name or opening a holdings company and owning equity through the company? I think that's a simple one. Own equities in your own name. Don't start getting involved in holding companies. And through the tax rate's a lot lower. Yeah. 16% versus 23. Uh, Kathy Muddlestrom says, what makes a good investment in this e- economic environment? Gosh, that's a good question. It's a question I ask every day. So over the last three years, I think you've wanted to be positioned in the defensive stocks. So these are the companies that sell products that you have to buy rather than the products that you want to buy. So the names that come to mind are your AVR brands, your Clicks, your Discams. Um, but I'm not so sure that that's the right way to be positioned now. I think now is probably the time to start getting a little bit more aggressive in the counters that are sensitive to a recovery um, in, in, in South Africa. So the fashion retailers, I think, are a good example. And that's why you have that diversification. I mean, you got, you know, a, as much as you think this is the sector to be in, I mean, there's sector rotation and sector diversification. Yep. So when we talk about, we talk about asset allocation, asset diversification, equities, property, bonds, cash, maybe alternative investments, the same thing you do in, in, a, in a managed equity portfolio. Yep. You, you, you pick the different sectors and then from a top down and then bottom up, you pick the stock. Yes. Uh, uh, Leonard in Benoni says, please explain the difference between alpha and beta terms when we discuss performance. We often talk about alpha and beta. Yeah, so it's, it's a good question. So alpha is are the excess returns that you earn over and above the market or a benchmark. And beta is a statistical measure of the level of risk that you're taking when you buy a share relative to the market. So when you're constructing a portfolio, what do you want? You want the highest level of alpha for the lowest level of beta. And that's really what's important to understand. And um, f- difficult to find alpha. Of course. I mean, if you look at the index, I mean, everyone's saying, you know, the index funds seem to uh, outperform 85% of, of fund managers. Difficult to know. But over a long period of time, would you say that good fund managers will outperform the index? Oh, absolutely. And especially in our market. I think it's less obvious overseas, but certainly in South Africa, um, where you've got big weights in the index, which distort the returns. I think it's very important sometimes to have an active strategy in the context of that sort of market. Sterling in sentences, how do I know if the assets that I've invested offshore invested in quality investments? So you can come up with a very technical answer to that question, but actually it all boils down to a very basic principle. So if I said to you, Brian, you have to buy a portfolio of stocks tomorrow that you can't touch for the next 20 years. Okay? The names that you're going to come up with will very closely approximate the portfolio that an analyst would come up with. Names like the Walt Disney Company, Unilever, Johnson & Johnson, Nike, those are the types of stocks that you want to own in a, a quality long-term offshore portfolio. Although the majority of portfolios really th- 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 have been driven by technology companies and their returns, robotics and e-commerce companies. Can you see, can you see that continue? For the time being, we can. Um, and certainly the level of earnings growth uh, inherent in those businesses is something to behold. But what you need to bear in mind is that the risk of disruption in that space is always very high. So what you think is a very deep and powerful um, moat, defensive moat for a business can be turned on its head tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so that's why you need to be a little bit more careful when it comes to the tech stocks. And Henry, I don't understand. I sit on a board, we decide that we've had a good year, our objective for the next 12 months is the following return. Let's say we say 11%. So we come the end of the year, we meet as a board, 
and we actually pat ourselves on the back, we've actually done 12%. Very happy we opened a bottle of champagne and we toast our success. You guys as analysts have said, no, we didn't expect 12, we expected 14. And because you, you as analysts expected 14, although we're quite happy as a business to have done 12, our share gets hammered. Yeah, so I mean, you, this is a very important point to make. When it comes to equity markets, it, it, it's always, it sh the performance of businesses is always measured relative to expectations. So a company can put out a very poor result, but provided that it beats what analysts were expecting, the share will normally do well. So Eskim losing five billion last year and three billion this year is a good result. Well, it depends what you're <laughs> expecting. Yeah. You know, you might have expected Eskom to lose ten billion rand, and that's a good result, even though in absolute terms it's. it's I'm a just using a number, by the way, just to yeah, interesting just example. Barry in Sanders says, "Can the price of an ETF div diverge from the pricing of underlying assets?" No, not really. So the way the uh, an ETF tracks the performance of an index is. Let me first, anyone who doesn't know what yeah. an ETF is, it's an exchange traded fund. It's passive. You're buying into a particular index could be financial, industrial, the all share index, whatever the case may be. Exactly. And the way it tracks the performance of that index is by buying and owning the underlying assets. So sometimes they're very small tracking errors due to technicalities, but they're never material. Okay. Because investment companies often trade at a discount to their net asset value, yes. but not ETFs. Exactly. But the mechanics of an investment company are very different because you're buying equity in a business, you're not buying an exchange traded fund. Henry in Cape Town says, with the South African current account deficit widening, how will this number impact on our South African market, which has now moved sideways for three years? So it's an interesting question. I think you need to bear in mind that a current account deficit is largely a function of um, a lack of investment in the country. It's not a, it, it, it's, it's not a cause. Um, so a current account deficit's not a great thing. It puts pressure on the fiscus. The government needs to borrow more money to, to fund it. Um, it puts pressure on the currency, which puts indirect pressure on the economy, but, but again, it's, it's symptomatic of a lack of interest, investment interest at least, in South Africa. Henry, I know the question about the RAND, anyone always says either genius or, or a fool, and there are not too many geniuses that call the RAND on sure. a daily basis, but the question I'd like to ask, if you were taking money offshore and, and you were going to convert from RANDs to a foreign currency, so would, right you now, would you yeah, wait? Ryan, I wouldn't be rushing out the door now. So I think the right answer when you're taking 10 Rand offshore is always to do three now, three later, and three even later. And that would still.